So welcome once again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leaders Podcast. We're here with the last week of the Just Like Barnabas series, taking a look, not at Acts proper, but at 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul's a request for John Mark to be sent back to him. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Your curriculum does go into Acts and really looks at Priscilla and Aquila and their discipling of Apollos, that Apollos was teaching boldly to the Jews, was teaching appropriately, but only knew John's baptism. So didn't fully understand the things of Christ, probably didn't fully understand, uh, here's one of your theological words for the day, the eschatological implications of what Christ did. Remember, eschatology is just the study of the end or the end times. So Apollos really probably didn't understand the full reconciliation of Gentiles and Jews into the triune Godhead, uh, didn't fully understand that Christ would return uh, to, to take his people away. Uh, that this was an inaugurated kingdom, but a yet unfulfilled uh, or fully actualized kingdom. So there were some some minor things that were off in his teaching. And so even though he's teaching boldly and teaching the truths about Christ, Priscilla and Aquila invite him to the side. They don't call him out in public, don't embarrass him in any way. I'm sure they were really encouraging of him. Like, wow, who'd you study under? This is impressive how much you know your abilities and skills are, are stunning. And they take him to the side and teach him more fully the ways of Christ. Fill in all those uh, all those gaps in various pieces of Apollos' knowledge. And then we see the prominence of Apollos where he winds up in Corinth. And Paul writes his, um, our first letter, his likely second letter, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. And one of the major uh, dissensions within there is who belongs to who. And so Paul opens up talking about some of you are asking, do I belong to Paul? Since Paul baptized me, do I belong to Apollos? Since Apollos baptized and is such a magnificent teacher, do I belong to Jesus? Because that's who you both are preaching about. There was confusion about who to follow because they were looking for that individual physical manifestation to follow, I think. Uh, Then Paul says his uh, powerful lines that Paulus and Paul didn't die for you. Christ died for you. And that some plant, some water, but it's always God who gives the growth. So we see the prominence of Apollos where he's on the level of Paul, at least in the eyes of the Corinthians, with his magnificent preaching and teaching. And that should encourage us to say that there's lots of folks in and around our churches who have these skills. Uh, there might even be unbelievers, you know, who have these sort of skills. And is to say, what are we doing in the likeness of Priscilla and Aquila to invite these people out and show them a more full way. Not everybody will be teachable all the time, but uh, through prayer and discernment, you can generally see who those people are. And with a little bit of aiming, what an old navigator said, a lot of people that are a little bit immature in the faith still have a lot of potency, uh, still have a lot of potency in their in their message and their witness. He called them unguided missiles. Uh, so our job is to build in a guidance system in some ways, teach them how to handle attacks, teach them how to study the Bible well, teach them how to share with other people. 
So who are you called to be Priscilla and Aquila to? And then on the other side, who are your Priscilla and Aquilas? And this is one of our spiritual challenge questions, if you recall, that flow out of our disciple-making strategy. It says, uh, who are you discipling and who is discipling you? And that, of course, brings a challenge to us of whether we're teachable. Are we open to instruction, uh, reproof and rebuke to mature and get better at what we do for the sake of uh, being more impactful for the kingdom? So I encourage you to remain humble. We talked a lot about that Philippians 2 passage having the mindset of Christ. Apollos had the mindset of Christ. There's no doubt in my mind he was smarter, at least more educated, let's say, than Priscilla and Aquila. Having come from Alexandria, probably studied a little bit at least under Philo of Alexandria, a brilliant philosopher. A lot with, he talks a lot about Lagos. He was a Jewish philosopher, Philo, contemporary of Jesus. Uh, there's no doubt that he was more educated than them, and yet he submitted to their teaching of a more better way about who Christ was. So we have to be that on both sides. We have to raise up younger people and uh, younger teachers, and I don't necessarily mean in age. I mean younger in reps and experience, and then we also need to be teachable ourselves. There's always something that someone can share with us to make us better. So the second Timothy passage shows a restoration of John Mark when Paul is asking for him back. And my fear is that we're going to miss some of the nuance and power in the conversion because we're going to look at it almost totally from Paul's perspectives. I know your preachers are going to talk about it a lot from Barnabas's perspective. What if Barnabas had not? Um, it was loyal and obedient of Barnabas to remain with John Mark and such restore him so that Paul could accept him back. But I don't think, if I was right last week, and by me being right, I mean the scholars I quoted to you were right last week, and what I learned about, I think the best explanation of John Mark's desertion is that he was uncomfortable, unwilling, or just didn't believe that Gentiles deserved this promise made to the Jews that they received through Messiah in Christ. And I sat through an 11 a.m. group uh, Sunday morning, where the teacher made a great point that it was less about Gentiles being saved, because that's pretty evident in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. It's evident that Gentiles are going to be saved, but that they were going to be saved in the same way as the Jews and saved to the same status as the Jews. That is, that we're all co-heirs of the same kingdom, brothers and sisters of Christ. Uh, think about that parable of Jesus about the workers and the ones show up in the morning and get a... Um, certain wage and then some guys show up an hour before quitting time and they get the same wage as the ones in the morning and uh, of course the early laborers get mad like we did more work we deserve more money than those people and the master landowner says um is my money to give this is what we agreed to did did i do anything wrong to you uh it was the attitude of those people that worked all day and saw these other people getting in at the end and all their paganism and all their rottenness and heathenness and they weren't children of the promise, uh, and, and it was a difficult thing to say that they're now redeemed to the same status as God's elect people, but that's precisely what Paul was preaching, wasn't it? That's exactly what he taught as he went from town to town, and I, I contend that John Mark couldn't handle that. John Mark didn't believe that, so he retreated back to Jerusalem. Again, some of the zealots and the Judaizers might have come about from John's report. Not that John instigated them, you need to go shut this down, but that just John's message of, man, Paul is preaching a radical message. 
that these Gentiles are equal heirs in this promise is is, is pretty stunning. And they don't have to abide the law or any of the rituals. Uh, Paul's Paul's radical, which may have uh, then instigated or gave some fodder to these Judaizers to go do what they did to the Galatian community as well as others. So I suggest that the more powerful message, and I think the more accurate message historically and biblically, is that we ought not see a conversion of Paul as he requests John Mark's presence to himself, but we ought to see a conversion of John Mark as Paul requests him. That we ought to see John Mark having come to understand how radical Paul was is nothing to how radical Jesus Christ was. Remember, John Mark was not one of the apostles, did not walk around with Jesus. And I think perhaps he um, missed some of the radical nature of who Christ was that the others had witnessed for themselves. And I think John Mark over time came to realize that through the discipleship and through the witness of Barnabas. So Barnabas's actions there were not a... Um, let, let's just buy it until Paul cools down. Paul's such a jerk. He's so hasty. It'll be okay in the end. He'll he'll get over it at some point. It was discipling Mark to say, you know, these Gentiles do get the same promises as us. They are equal heirs in Christ. That that Christ unifies in a way that is more radical than any of us could, could have ever thought about. Uh, to, so that Paul could say, in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. That's the message. That's what Jesus did uh, as he paid for our sins and, and redeemed us so we can be set right with the triune Godhead. John Mark, through the discipleship of Barnabas, came to understand that reality. So the conversion, I think, that we need to set before our people is not Paul's conversion to accept him back, but John Mark's conversion to submit himself to the truth of what Christ had done and the role that Barnabas played in walking with his cousin to help him come to see that and then the power that flowed out of that with what Mark produced. Again, the Gospel of Mark by which Matthew and Luke likely, if you believe Mark in priority, and I do, that Mark came first, that Luke and uh, Matthew borrowed many of the stories from, um, that Mark was able to go around and take Peter's sermons, that Mark came to this new understanding where I want to be a partner in what Paul's doing. Paul says, send him to me because he's a help. I want to be a partner in what I didn't believe in earlier. Uh, I think that's the message we said before our, our people. Now for a philosophical moment. So those of you who don't care, you can shut it off at this point. I'm not going to talk about the text anymore. Those are the two things I would raise up if I was teaching it. But as of now, I'm not. However, the title of this lesson is Believing. It's Believing. So I think we say, one, look at Apollos' belief becoming more full through the discipleship of Priscilla and Aquila. Look at the conversion of belief in John Mark through the discipleship and witness of Barnabas. And then we want to emulate those people. But when I hear belief, I go back into my philosophical mind about the spirit of our age and the, the culture in which we find ourselves. And I'm in a handful of conversations now that are all stem from the same reality. They're all, they're, each different belief expressed by the individuals with whom I'm speaking are all symptoms of the same problem. And that is a problem of knowledge. And I think that is the battle 
that the church finds itself in today. And I'm not convinced that we're ready for it. I certainly wasn't ready for it. I, I certainly didn't understand it. We find we find ourselves in a culture that is pluralistic. Pluralistic. Pluralism is the view that different beliefs and varied beliefs and ideas are all equally valid, even if they contradict one another. Pluralism. So if you want to be an atheistic, traditional, classical Buddhist, follow the Eightfold Path of Buddha and find enlightenment that way, that is equally valid to the theistic system of Christianity who says there's only salvation to the person and work of Christ. That these are equally valid and legitimate views, even though they contradict one another at their core. Pluralism accepts it all and puts it all on equal footing. Now, it is crazy to think that we could actually live like pluralists. It's, it's impossible to deny the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is that something can't be the same and different in the same way at the same time. So if I say that car there is red, and then I immediately follow that up with that car there referring to the same one as not red, then I better be using red in a different way, or I'm contradicting myself. Um, I can't exist and not exist. I'm driving in the rain right now, so I can't be driving in the rain and not driving in the rain at the same time in the same way. So pluralists deny that. Now, they don't deny it for their whole lives, and this brings us to the crux of the issue. I believe that the pluralism that we experience in our culture is an outworking of our theory of knowledge. The primary theory of knowledge in our culture is epistemological naturalism. Epistemological naturalism. Epistemology is just the study of knowledge. How do we know things? What things do we know? How can we know them? And then naturalism is just the general view that the natural world is all there is. So epistemological naturalism says that the natural world, that is to say our five things we discern through our five senses or the direct implications thereof, are the only things that we can actually know. Those are the only legitimate candidates for knowledge. Epistemological naturalism. Now, Metaphysical naturalism is the view that the natural world is all that there actually is. So it's a denial of supernaturalism, a denial of God, angels, demons, sets, numbers, justice. None of those would be seen as real things. You can be an epistemological naturalist without being a metaphysical naturalist. Okay? You can believe that the only kind of knowledge we can have comes through our five senses and yet still believe in supernaturalism, believe in God, and believe in all the rest. There's a very famous philosopher named W.V.O. Quine, Willard Van Orman Quine. Uh, might have been more of a mathematician than a philosopher. If they, Maybe there's not a difference. But he believed that sets and numbers were real. They were just as real as anything else because they were so suitable for the sciences that we could actually describe the world in which we live through numbers and sets. So he believed that those things were real. So he was open to the idea of there being a God, but he would say, to know there's a God, that kind of knowledge must come through or be a direct implication of my five senses. Observation or empiricism may be a term you're more familiar with. Our culture today 
functions under an epistemological naturalism while broadly rejecting metaphysical naturalism. That is to say that we have a culture full of W.V.O. Quine kind of people who say that, yes, there probably is a God, but because knowledge is so limited to my senses and the physical world that I can't know who that God is. I can't know that God personally. I don't know which of these religions is true because I don't discern the truth of religion through my five senses religion matters of faith matters of belief of that sort become something more akin to opinion than to knowledge that is our culture and that is why pluralism is rampant because we're not pluralistic with how we view the physical world the sciences tell us what it is we don't deny those obvious things that we observe and confront and feel uh in ourselves, in our own subjective selves. But then we do deny that we can know religious truths, truths about justice, truths about freedom, some of these grander ideals, what some have tended to call more abstract ideas. Those are not real candidates for knowledge. Therefore, we can't judge one is right and another is wrong. Therefore, they're all equally valid. Thus, we land ourselves into this crazy society in which contradictory views are equally valid because none of us have knowledge. That view, believe it or not, is not so radically different than the fundamentalist views of the 50s and 60s with evangelical Christianity. Uh, Particularly with the rise of Darwinism and the Scopes trial and the like, fundamentalist evangelicals were very quick to say Well, we take it by faith alone. Using that language in a different way, I think, than the Reformers meant faith alone. That um, we don't trust the sciences. The sciences are wrong when it comes to these certain ideas about God, about faith, about creation, about biological diversity, or whatever the case may be. And so they radically restricted knowledge too, and then moved faith to something that was devoid of evidence. They moved Christian faith to something that was devoid of fact and logic and reason, which has never been the case. So the fundamentalists and the epistemological naturalists came together to really put um, Christianity in a diluted water, into a diluted, weaker state. So now imagine we're raising up a generation of children, grandchildren, young people who go to school learn from these books we say respect your teachers learn the authority of your teachers Uh, they receive all of this information they do lab experiments and then they come home to us and they say well you know jesus exists in a different way than you know all that stuff you learned at school you know that jesus lives in a different way than you know how you work that math problem and we put this radical dichotomy in the way that people come to know things and learn things and i think if we do that we're setting our we're setting up the next generation for failure that we as mature believers in the priscilla aquila and the barnabas and the paul variety have to understand that there's an historical basis for christianity that is not present in other faiths that there's a logical consistency within christianity that's not there in other faiths, that there's a philosophical coherence and robustness to Christianity that is not a part of any other faith, 
that there is an ethical outworking of Christianity that surpasses any other faith, that there are good reasons to believe in Christianity, that when I say I know that Christ was raised from the dead, I mean it very much in the same sense that I say I know that I'm driving up Concord Road right now. I'm using knowledge in the same way. I don't mean it as a matter of opinion, because I, because there's good arguments. There's the witness of the Holy Spirit as we read this text of the scriptures, as we read the Bible. There's an experiential living. Uh, there's a fitness that where, where, where Christianity seems to fit over our reality and the way our reality is, that the sciences are not arbitrary disciplines that just hang in midair without any metaphysical anchors. But Christianity comes and says, no, the sciences are our description of what God is doing and has done in the world, the way he designed it, created it, and the way it functions. That God made us in his image to fit this world. God put us here to recognize the world. It's not just a happy accident, which is what the naturalist has to fall to. So I think our battle is a battle of knowledge. Uh, our battle is one that wants to argue and defend the idea of Christianity as a legitimate candidate for knowledge. That is something more than opinion. That in the living of, in the arguments for, in the ancient history of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that I am as sure of Christianity as I am of pretty much anything else that there is. So I, I, I'm not asking you to remember all these terms. I'm not necessarily asking you to track down every argument for the faith or to learn the full philosophy behind Christianity or anything else. What I want to do with this is simply expose you to the battles that we face, that we have to be careful as leaders and teachers with our language where we're not divorcing faith from knowledge, where, where we're not setting our people up for failure down the road where they think that their Christianity is something that's less sure than uh, much of what they believe through the sciences, uh, whether social sciences or, or otherwise, that we as leaders have to give them the equipment and tools to understand their faith, to be Bereans and to test their faith out, that it is good to know a couple arguments for the faith, um, and on and on it goes, whatever path you choose to take, however God's wired you. So that's uh, that's your philosophical moment, is, is to say, and I want you to look for it as you watch the news, as you hear different arguments and debates over social justice, which is so ripe at our time. I want you to listen to it if you hear any atheist talk. Listen for this. Listen for this this idea that there's a set of stuff we can know and there's a set of stuff we can't know. And that set inside that set of stuff we can't know are things like God exists, things like salvation through Christ, um, things like how do we achieve the afterlife. Those are things we just take purely by faith with no evidence, no reason. They don't count as knowledge. And that's a battle we got to fight is to say, no, we we know Christianity. Uh, we know Christ as much as we know anything else. Uh, lots of good arguments for that. Uh, lots of good Christian philosophers have really run down this epistemological battle and have uh, flipped it back, I think, to the believer's side of understanding. And um, I would love to share all that with you over time. I don't think this is the venue for that depth. J.P. Moreland just released a very accessible article about this a little five trends in our culture five shifts i think he calls it actually in our culture so i'll post to that and you can click on that link and hear more about some of this stuff um, 
more about some of the stuff I'm suggesting. As the Just Like Barnabas series comes to a close, I encourage you to continue to elevate the echoes of Christ and Barnabas. Is that John Mark had a very limited view. Again, if I was right last week, John Mark had a very limited view of what God was doing through and for the Gentiles to redeem them to a status equivalent to that of the Jews, to his elect people. And that Barnabas was patient. Barnabas was faithful. Barnabas didn't abandon. Barnabas walked with until John Mark came to that realization. So much so that Paul requested him uh, at the end of Paul's life, send me John Mark because he's helpful to me. This guy that disagreed with our mission early on somehow has become helpful to me now. And I think the obvious answer is he's come to see the reality of what God's doing and what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, And in that, we see the way Christ works with us, that, that we are becoming, if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, then you're becoming something different. The Holy Spirit is changing you. The Holy Spirit is growing you and maturing you. And the Holy Spirit is doing that because you've been called for a purpose. You're already living into that purpose, but uh, it's obviously broader and bigger, and there's more twists and turns in it than you may think. And you're being made into that person. And the Lord is patient with you. You don't understand everything you need to know right now for what the Lord wants you to do and what the Lord wants you to become. And just like Barnabas walks with John Mark and is patient with John Mark and teaches and loves and is compassionate towards John Mark, same goes our Savior towards us. That as we're slowly in our instances of rebellion and lack of understanding of what God is up to around us, uh, the Lord is incredibly patient with us. The Holy Spirit continues to intercede in prayer on our behalf. And we're not praying what we ought to be praying. The Holy Spirit is doing that for us. And that will come into sync over time as we continue in the diligent study of the scriptures and diligent prayer. As we continue to outreach to neighbors and nations, to the lost and searching. As we continue to remain in fellowship of biblical community. We're going to become those people. And we trust that we have a Lord who wants our best a Lord who has redeemed us. We can know that in the same way we've known everything because he's told us in the scriptures and his Holy Spirit testifies to us. We continue to elevate Christ. This is is our calling as Christian leaders, as kingdom people. Make Christ known. So whether you're teaching Barnabas, whether you're teaching epistemological naturalism, whether you're talking about Apollos, wherever you go in your groups this week, continue to make much of the name of Christ.